Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Ed Rogers and uh, filled in here a little bit uh, when you guys were looking for a pastor and pleased as anything that you got Pastor Phil. I uh, got to know him quite a bit and uh, think very highly of him and love what you all are doing as a church and was delighted to say yes when he called me and said, hey, will you come over and fill in again? So uh, it's good to be back with you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we get started? Father, we come before you today and we thank you and we praise you for who you are. It's good to be in your house. It's good to be able to be with brothers and sisters who love you and to praise your holy name, to praise it in song, to, to praise you in prayer, to praise you in our, our gifts as we give later in the offering, to praise you around the table of communion to remember and to celebrate and to say thank you for the shed blood and the, sh the broken body of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. And as we come before you now and as we look at your word, Lord, we pray that what we offer you in our response to what the Holy Spirit speaks to us would be an act of worship. We pray that you will internalize within us the message that you want us to hear, that it would not tickle our ears, Lord, but that it would inspire us and challenge us to be more of who you want us to be and to do more of what you want us to do. And we'll give you all the glory and the honor as you work in and through us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Several years back, I was in a time of prayer, and, and I was really just looking at this incredible difference between people in the Christian faith that had made incredible sacrifices over and over and over again in their life, and others who just kind of lived at that kind of shallow level, if you will. Now, I wish I could say that I put myself over here in this camp with the ones who had made these great sacrifices, but I really didn't. I was really struggling with, would I be that kind of person that would give my life for my faith? Would I be that kind of person that, that when push came to shove, really would make those kind of sacrifices that so many other people I see who are so serious about their faith make? And it led me to kind of go into the scriptures and look at, at people in the Bible and at particular times in their life where the game kind of changed. You understand what I'm saying? In every journey that we have, there's kind of a point where the game changes, isn't there? I mean, driving over here this morning, I, I've been driving Route 50 a little bit in the last week to go to Ellenboro, and, and there's a detour on Route 50 coming from Parkersburg. It's about a 15-mile detour down old Route 50 to get around the bridge that they have shut down just south of, of Ellenborough, and, and, and it takes about 20, 25 more minutes during the week. You're following all the water trucks and all the tractor and trailers across old Route 50, and for me, I was just absolutely dreading that drive this morning. I had no idea how much long, how much longer was going to make my drive. I was trying to make it here on time. All those kind of things were going through my head. And then I get to where the detour normally is, and just so happens on the weekend, they take it away, praise the Lord. And everything changed, just like my whole attitude changed, because I didn't have to go on this detour. I go down the road about 20 more miles, and I see an orange sign on the side of the road that says what? Detour ahead, right? But again, like West Virginia, there was no detour. I just kept on going. But my mindset changed again. I was thinking, it's incredible how those little things along our journey change 
everything. Change the way we see things, the way we think about things. And when you go to the scripture, you see this happening in so many people's lives. And so I actually put together this sermon series years ago that, that looked at these times in the lives of biblical characters that kind of made them into these incredible people of faith, if you will. People who were really sold out for Christ, people who are willing to make this incredible commitment for Jesus, people who reflected what we see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, which says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a motto for your life, amen? Well, what a way, what a motto for your life, amen? Yeah, there you go. And, and if we could all live that way, imagine the difference that we could make in the world for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm looking at these heroes in the Bible, and guess who jumps out at me in my prayer time? Who jumps out at you as a hero in the Bible? Just shout it out. Who? King David, King David right? Who else? Abraham. Who else? Moses. Who else? Esther. Who else? Simon Peter, anybody else? Nobody is shouting out the one that came to me. His name is Thomas. You read the bulletin, didn't you? Or is it up here? Yeah, okay. There you go. Thomas. And I was surprised as you in my prayer time to, to think, well, how is Thomas one of these guys? And so I began to look at this fellow named Thomas. Thomas, the doubting disciple, the one that we give kind of up the river all the time, don't we? The one that we, we I mean, that's how we know him as. We know him as not Thomas the disciple or Thomas the apostle. We know him as Thomas the doubting disciple. But let's take a little bit closer look at him and just examine his life a little bit for a short time this morning, if you will. Go back to John chapter 14, verse 1 through 7. Give a little bit of a look at an earlier part of his life before we get to the main scripture for today. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 14 of John, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you, that where I am, you also may be. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus, the way to the Father. Now, we've heard that over and over again at funerals. We've heard it in sermons. But listen to the reaction that comes from this character, Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And that's when we get this incredible answer from Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, now what I want you to understand out of this about our friend Thomas is this, is that Thomas is like some of the rest of us. And that is some folks just live with a pattern of doubt and disbelief. L listen to me there. I don't think that Thomas is a worse disciple than the others. I don't think that Thomas is, is a less disciple than the others. I think Thomas just happens to have this kind of internal personality kind of thing going on where he is just that kind of guy who always defaults to the doubts, always defaults to the disbelief. Let, let me theologicalize this. That's not a word. Let me over-spiritualize this for you a little bit. Some folks are just a lot more hard-headed than others. 
Amen? Yeah? As some people just, it takes a lot more to get it than others. I was sitting at a football game not too long ago this past season and, and with a friend of mine, and I just shake my head because it can be three seconds into the game. And if the opposing team scores a touchdown, he throws his hands in the air and he goes, well, this one's over, right? Anybody you know people like that? Everything is just so incredibly negative. There's no way we can come back from this. There's no way we can accomplish this. Maybe in the church you know some people like that. Anybody? Well, there's no way we can pull that off. There's no way we have the funds to make that happen. There's no way we can really change the community for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are people who just always go to disbelief. They just always go to doubt. Now, the great thing about these people is this. They self-identify themselves. Do you know what they call themselves? Realists. That's what they call themselves. Because anyone in their mind who is ideological or goes to the positive more, they feel is just kind of living out there somewhere, and they want to pull everybody back down to this realism, if you will. They feel like they are realists. Now, I don't think there's really a lot wrong with that, unless it's carried to the extreme. But here's what I think. I think if we default to that pattern over and over and over, just like every other weakness that you and I have in our life, this will be the place that Satan attacks us. This will be the place that Satan uses against us. This will be the place, if it's our default to be more doubting and more disbelieving, this is where he will keep us from having faith. This is where he will throw all kinds of stuff in our way to try to confuse us, to try to make us even doubt more. Anybody ever have that experience in your life where you have this little bit of doubt and then things keep happening? Satan uses things to confuse you, confuse you, confuse you, hoping that your doubt will lead to disbelief, that your doubt will lead to a lack of faith. I, I, I love this story I heard of an English gentleman who was riding in a rail car back in the days and uh, he had two kind of older ladies, very proper, across from him and, and he was sitting in this box with them and they went through a tunnel and everything got pitch black. And he just grabbed his own hand and he began to kiss his own hand over and over and over again so that everybody could hear it. And when they came to light, he just sat there. And the two ladies looked at each other like, was it you? Was it you? It was you, right? Confusion abounds. And that's exactly what Satan does in our life. And what we've got to be aware of is if we have this pattern of defaulting to doubt that this is what Satan will use against us. But here's what I want you to understand is that even if we are that kind of person, doubt doesn't always need to lead to something bad. As a matter of fact, a lot of times doubt can be that point of the journey that changes for us. I believe with Thomas it was the point in his journey where God used it to change the game. That God took his doubt and made it into faith. For Thomas, here's kind of the way it happened. It kind of happened like this. For Thomas, he had doubt, and the doubt led to questions, and the questions led to a relationship where he was engaged asking questions of Jesus, and then we see later it leads to faith. 
And here's what I want you to understand is, I don't think you need to beat yourself up for your doubts. I don't think you need to beat yourself up when you don't have it all together like maybe some other superheroes of the faith do because very often doubt is turned by Christ into faith. Let me say it again. Doubt can be the first steps towards a deeper faith, towards a more abiding faith. As a matter of fact, Thomas isn't the only one who had doubts in the Bible. You go to almost every character in the Bible, you look at Abraham using his wife as a sister because he doubted that God would do what he said. David turning to Bathsheba for pleasure because he doubted that God really would do what he wanted. Peter denying Christ because he doubted that God would really take care of him. On and on and on. Go over to Mark chapter 9 with me for just a minute. Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, in the middle of this story, we, we see this man who, whose son is in need of healing. And, and he takes him to Jesus and he says, if you can heal him, heal him. And, and look in verse 23 of Mark 9, what it says. Jesus says, if you can, right? If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed what? I do believe. I do believe what? Help me overcome my unbelief. Man, that's powerful to me. Because I want to tell you what. I'm standing here as a pastor today, standing here delivering the message to you fine folks today. And I will tell you that there are many times in my life where I choose to believe, but I still doubt. And I have to say to my Lord and my God, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me overcome my doubts. Help me overcome my disbelief. Help me overcome my pattern of always wondering whether you really will do what you said you would. Who, whether you really are who you say that you are. It's not wrong to doubt. It's not wrong to go there. It's wrong to allow the doubt to take us the steps down to unbelief. Now, here's what, what I'm talking about. Remember, we look at Thomas and we go, here's the doubt that leads to questions, that leads to a relationship, that leads to deeper faith. For others, here is the doubt that is confused by Satan into more doubt that leads to a choice not to believe. And the question is not whether I doubt the question is what I do with my doubts. Now, let's go to, to this famous passage of Thomas where he gets his, his bad rap in John chapter 20. And let's see what happens. John chapter 20, 24 through 29. Now, Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, what? I will not believe it. Now, can't you imagine if I was Jesus and Thomas had seen me do the things he'd seen me do. He knew the miracles I had done. He had heard from his best friends that they had already seen me. I, if I were Jesus, I'd be going, well, you know what? I'm not going to prove it to you. If you don't know any more than that, if you don't think any I would be a little bit irritated. I would be a little bit aggravated. But look at this. A week later, 
His disciples in verse 26 were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And without anything else, without any other, you know, acknowledgments of anyone else in the room, he looks at Thomas first. Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What a God we serve. Amen? Rather than getting mad because we doubt. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in a tradition where, quite frankly, people taught me that any doubt I had was absolutely wrong and it made God mad. It was absolutely wrong and made God mad. And you know what it did? It created a bunch of people running around pretending that they didn't doubt. Raising their hand in praise and adoration to God and testifying to how much faith they had to people like me who were young going, I doubt, I doubt, going, I can't be like any of them. They must have something I don't have. And I never could quite get it until I realized that they are just faking it, some of them, because it's not right to doubt. I believe it's human to doubt. I believe God understands our doubt. I believe that God takes our doubt and does something with it. Look here, what happens to Thomas. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Amen? My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, now you say, well, what Jesus is saying there is these people are better people who don't have to see it. Well, yeah, it's kind of cool if you're not hard-headed. Amen? But if you are, God still loves you. If you are, God will still work in your life. If you are, God will answer your doubt if you take it to him. That is the key. First of all, look at how Jesus responds. He immediately walks in the room. He gives him what he needs to believe because Thomas was doing something in all this. He was seeking God. He was genuinely wanting to know what God had to say about it. He was genuinely wanting to see Christ himself. He was genuinely, genuinely wanting to know what the answers were. And so Jesus walks into the room. Imagine the intimacy of this scene. Imagine the personal love of this scene. Our resurrected Christ lifts his hands out to Thomas, the doubting disciple. Thomas, put your fingers right there in those holes. Thomas, put your finger right there in that hole on my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. That brings me something emotional in my life. Because when I'm beating myself up because I'm doubting my God, I remember this is the God that walked into the room to Thomas and said, stick your fingers in the holes. I know you're hard-headed. I love you anyway. Amen? How many hard-headed people we got out there? Point to your husband. Point to your wife if you need to. All right? I'm here standing right before you today. But then he requires something of Thomas. I believe then Thomas understands there's something that needs to be done. He says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And I don't know about you, but it's almost like he says to do something that seems to be almost impossible. He says, choose to believe. Choose to believe. What's up with that? I mean, I can tell you that I drove the speed limit coming over here today, right? 
But you got to believe it or not believe it. And if you know me to be a, a liar, and you've passed me on Route 50 before, some of you are going to go, I don't believe that for a minute, right? And yet I could say, well, you got to choose to believe it because I told you it was true. And you're going, well, I can't choose to believe it because I know you. But this, my friends, is what faith is. Faith is saying, even though I have unbelief, I believe, help me with the unbelief. Faith is saying, even though I don't completely understand it, I'm going to choose to believe it. And that is what Thomas does. I'm going to choose to believe what I'm seeing here. I'm going to choose to respond to my Lord and to my God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the deal. There are people out there in this world that are so sure and have no doubts about what they believe, but what they believe is wrong. It is better to choose to believe something that is right and deal with your doubts than it is to choose to believe something that is totally false and be sure about it. And this is the difference between people with faith and people with no faith. This is the difference between the world who thinks the cross is foolishness and those of us who have chosen to place our faith in it. I had a professor in college one time that got into a dialogue with a student and he was talking about his, the professor was talking about his faith and, and the student was saying, I'm an atheist and I don't believe any of that. And, and he looked at the professor and he said, are you 100% sure that what you're saying is true? And I'll never forget the answer this professor gave. He said, I'm not 100% sure. He said, on most days I'm about 95 to 99% sure. But he said, I'm sure enough to bet my life on it. I'm sure enough to bet my eternity on it. He said, how sure are you that I'm wrong? Are you sure enough to bet your eternity on it? And I don't know about you, and you might think I'm just a weak Christian, and if you're stronger than me, then praise God, I would love to have you help disciple me a little bit. But I love the fact that sometimes, even when I don't believe, God requires me to trust him anyways. That's when I get closer to him. That's when I get more intimate with him. That's when I'm driven to pray more. That's when I'm driven to read his word more. That's when I'm driven to pay attention to him more. John 20, 28, because Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You think Thomas changed being a doubter? You think he never, ever doubted anything of Christ again? Well, we would think, we would hope so. He touched his hands. He put his hand in the side, but... My guess is he doubted him again anyways. But he was his Lord and his God, and he chose to allow the doubt to take him to a place of faith. Could it be, as we look at the Scripture, could it be, I think it is, that this apostle who we call the doubter was the very first to proclaim the entirety of who he is? My Lord and my God? Could it be that he was the first one to really believe completely who Jesus is and put his complete faith in, in him? Very well could be. So for you and I, doubting 
is normal. For some, it's a lot more normal than others because we're more hard-headed. But let your doubt lead to questions. Let your questions be formulated into a relationship with Christ where you're praying and reading and studying and asking him for the answers and depending on him to give them. And let that relationship be born into a deeper abiding faith than you've ever had in your life. Doubt's not bad. It can lead you to incredible faith. Just don't get into that pattern where it leads you into disbelief. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we come before you today and we come before your table, we are so reminded of Thomas. We know, Father, that we, like him, very often doubt. We know that sometimes, and some of us, live in a pattern of doubt. We pray, Lord, that you will use those doubts to lead us to a deeper and more abiding faith. Father, for the congregation who's here today, wherever each person may be, as we prepare ourselves to come to your table, as we prepare ourselves to worship in this service longer, as we prepare ourselves to move out of this place and to serve you in this world, turn our doubts into faith as we give them to you. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.